Hello everyone and welcome to part 2 of the Insufferable Film Dork Society discussion of the film Mandy. If you haven't listened to part 1, you might want to if you want this to make sense. Also, we will be spoiling the shit out of this movie, obviously. Why wouldn't we? Anyways, here we go. And I think that this is like a turning point for the character when he ingests like this. My read on it, he's like he eats some of like this demonic LSD and it 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 like changes him. It makes him like even more of like a, a killer and a fighter that we get revealed at the end that his voice when he fights Jeremiah, his voice is exactly like the biker he killed. That scene is interesting to me specifically because I don't think that's his voice. I think that's how Jeremiah is seeing it. Hmm. I think in that biker scene, just to go back a second, it is a a sequence of transformation. It starts real small when they rip his shirt. And it's clearly that's real upsetting to him because later he's screaming at him about it. Um, then he gets his, uh, he kills Butterball in front of the TV, and the uh, blood gets sprayed on his face. And he's, like, red for the rest of the movie, just covered in blood. The rest of the movie, he's just soaked in blood. He, he puts on some of their biker gear, and he takes the LSD and basically stops speaking for the rest of the movie, even mm. at points where you think that there should be dialogue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just stops. Like, he, the chemist, he doesn't say a single fucking word, and the chemist is just, like, reacting to him. It's like he's reacting to him saying things, but he's not saying anything. He also takes a piece of broken glass and takes a little bit of the, the mountain of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just great. Yeah. Which is a very Nicolas Cage scene, to be honest. He's, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was just, he, that wasn't acting. They just filmed him doing that. The biker sequence is the most recognizably Cagean part of the, uh, the movie. It is. And I'd like to say, the violence, with the exception of one scene, all the violence in this movie is very quick. These are not prolonged. Even like the scene where Mandy burns, you see a little bit of it, but it's mostly Nicolas Cage's anguished face and goes to each of the dipshit cultist members. Uh, Sister Marlene being real happy because the woman she was jealous about was being burned. Like that amazing shot of the guy who's holding the sleeper bag, like sticking his tongue out and grinning. I, I find it interesting how they like structured the encounters because... The biker demons are the ones that are handled first. They are the first Mm -hmm. obstacle for Red. The mortal human followers of the the Children of the New Dawn, however, they are the, like, climb up the mountain. And honestly, it feels very gamey where you take out the grunts first, and then you have this sequence with this, you know, I don't know, mystic who leads you to the final evil stronghold, and he kind of works his way up. He starts out with the two most pathetic ones and then kind of kills the dipshits and ends with Mother Marlene. It's got a very specific, like, feel to it. Does anybody else have anything they want to say about the Skull Gang? I really like their design, and I really like how they are more or less hidden in shadows or obscured oh, yeah. visually. This movie very much does not over-explain itself or over-present its creatures. Also, I'd like to point out, on that note, as you get further on, Nicolas Cage's character during the like scenes becomes himself more obscured by shadow. One of the things I like about the bikers, especially as like uh, characters, is that 
it's a constant back and forth in terms of like are they are they real are they mystical you first get introduced to them by them blowing the horn of abraxas and summoning them from the woods it's completely mystical uh and then you get the story about how they're like they're just bikers who are just fucked up on lsd and you get to like see them up close on a lingering shot in the light for the first time in that house where they capture him. At that point, they're sort of demystified and you're like, okay, these are just like really fucking weird bikers. And then he takes the LSD and he goes outside to fight the, the leader of the biker gangs and he shoots a fucking arrow into the back of his head and he just pulls it out through the front. And you're just like, okay, maybe not. Maybe these aren't human. And while I agree, there's a lot of, you know, you're just like, that seems extremely mystical and demonic. You're also like, maybe he's just so fucked up on drugs, it would take him an hour to actually notice that he's dying from a neck wound. And it's, I love that about them is that it's never, it's never confirmed. They never uh, definitively say one way or another if, like, these bikers are, are human beings or not. And that is a feature that is very, very to this movie's strengths. It very much believes that less, uh, less is more in some cases. In other places, it overindulges and it works all the better for it. All right. I'd like to talk about a scene that probably the scene I struggle with the most and i'm curious to your thoughts the scene with the chemist i don't know what to make of that scene it's it nicholas cage just basically because it seems like he's been given a vision by the dark lsd goes to this chemist's location and he says nothing to the lsd chemist but the lsd chemist seems to be able to understand exactly what he's saying he has a tiger Nicholas Cage tells him with his mind that having a captive tiger is bad, so he lets him go. <laughs> it's like, you're right. It's time for her to go. And he just opens the cage <laughs> and the tiger just runs out into the woods and it's just like, oh, okay. Because okay. there's just a wild tiger out there now. There's these all these millipedes on the floor, which I assume is what the poison from the dark LSD is farmed from, uh, you know, who knows? I thought those were hallucinations, to be honest. Yeah, I feel like the read is like the LSD chemist and like he are now like on the same wavelength and are both completely now f- entirely fucked up and just like and they're having a conversation that's happening entirely in their heads. Oh, man, they wronged you. Why they gotta be like that? You exude a cosmic darkness. Can you see that? I don't know. It, it sort of makes sense in the moment if that if that makes any sense. Nothing makes sense. No, no, I think it I think it does. Like the tone is sort of like he comes in there and he just looks fucked up as hell. He just stares. No, I mean too red. Nothing makes sense. But it doesn't matter. He's already crossed that threshold. He's singularly minded at this point. Which I agree with Reese here. I don't understand the place that the uh, that the chemist has in this sort of I don't know cosmology. Is that is that the word to use here? I know what he is. He's the fucking mystical wizard who makes the magic potions. He's like the wizard he has to go and see to learn the whereabouts of the cult. I'm assuming he's the same person that created the drugs for Mandy. I think that's pretty much true. It's basically stated that he knows who the bikers were because he said they wronged you, didn't they? Or maybe he's referring to the the cult, but they're they're like related. Pretty sure that's the children of the New Dawn. He's basically like the scene in another a normal movie where he goes to the Wizard's Tower and uh, asks for advice, but it's an LSD manufacturer, and they're both high as fuck. And there's a tiger. And there's a tiger named Lizzie. <laughs> The fact that the tiger is given a name makes it all the better. <laughs> that and when chemist obviously with sorrow in his heart goes 
bye, Lizzie, as she pads <laughs> away. It, to me, is, is the cherry on that cake. Well, I thought the implication there was, like, off-scene, the chemist is killed. Or something along those lines. I don't think so. But we as the viewers aren't given the satisfaction. I take it as Nicolas Cage spared him, personally. I think it's purposeful that Nicolas Cage read in this movie is not 100% a mindless killer. There's either direct involvement with Mandy's death or, you know, you're just fucking with him and deserve to die. Uh, But, you know, he later on, he spares that uh, one girl who's clearly just like an utter moron who got wrapped up in something. Does he spare her or does he kill her off camera? I don't think that's ever clarified. Which girl? Sister Lucy, the the yeah, young one. She's she's spared. She is. It's impossible to say unless you know you see it on camera. But I, to me, I see it as the chemist and Lucy are spared. I guess it's really hard to tell because it's one of those things that they never like clarify. To me personally, the clarification is the relish that is taken with each other kill. That if there was a death from the chemist or Lucy, the language that we've seen thus far, we would see that and we would see how and why he did it. I think you might be right. And plus, when they've got like, he's taunting him in the shed while he's tied up. He's like, show how much you love me and hands her like a fucking revolver with one bullet in it and does the Russian roulette thing. And he's just like, no. And then she does it and just like she doesn't die. I think it's kind of important to note for their like on-screen relationships, I suppose, Red has with the characters. Sister Lucy is, I think, the only one that n- never says a word. When they're getting Mandy, she says, it's, it's a beautiful dream, and you can be a part of that dream with us. So, yeah, I agree, but it's like she, you get a little bit of a sense of the passivity. And, uh, and I think that kind of Red senses that. And I think it is an act of mercy where it's like, listen... Maybe you deserve to die for being a part of this, I, but I just don't have it in me to kill somebody who has just been hooked along for the ride. Yeah, she's definitely portrayed as like a victim of Jeremiah more so than like an active like participant in the cult. Because like he, she gets sent to his room like right at the beginning of the movie after he's like, Brother Swan, go and get me that person and send in what's her name to my room. And sort of, like, implied that he's uh, sexually abusive. Uh, more than just an implication, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. But also, I think, too, um, to me, my read on it is that he spares the chemist just because, like, he's already made that pact with him. Okay? Being a part of the dark LSD, the chemist was totally submissive, gave him everything he wanted, Maybe was like, you know, you or I could say that he has a degree of responsibility for creating the situation. But Nicolas Cage is just kind of like, well, I'm already on your dark LSD. I guess I fuck it. You can live. Yeah, I I don't think he kills the chemist. I never got that implication. There's a lot of stuff that's left up in the air, and I appreciate it. Yeah, but I think the thing is, too, is that I think the director would be happy to let you have either interpretation. um, Because I I think he's, he's stated in multiple interviews. The thing that interests him least in a story is the actual plot and getting too into it. He likes the tone. He likes the feeling. He likes the emotional effect it has on the audience. If I can, I will accept any punishments sent for this. But uh, is Panos Kismatos the Dark Souls of film? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I think to me personally, uh, I feel like Mandy needs an easy mode. Oh, is this a disc... (laughs) The discourse we're getting into now. Yeah, exactly. You should be able to skip the the romance parts and skip the part where the blood gushes onto his face. I think you should have a cheat code to play as the Cheddar Goblin for all the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're talking. Now we're bringing this all back. Fucking Cheddar Goblin. Red gets replaced with a Cheddar Goblin. Like the scene is just like he he walks into the house afterwards and then he just like sees the commercial and then, like, it cuts back to him, and he's the Cheddar Goblin standing there, and you look back at the TV, and Red is in the fucking commercial. Man, that would have been a good scene. Panos, uh, please contact. Yeah, we've got, we've got some ideas. 
and sequel to Mandy starring the Cheddar Gump. Okay, never mind. So let's stuff. let's talk about the the ending, uh, the the kind of final stuff, and then the ending of the movie, which I think supports a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about here. He makes his way to the compound, which is this like fucked up valley, uh, where they seem to be doing like a lot well, of work. It's a quarry where they've built a a church, like an A frame church, like one of those old A frame buildings. It's literally just a triangle, and they've got a big cross in it. I just want to say, like, the way it's visually given to us is awesome. The visual presentation of the church is really fucking cool. The way that you see it and it pans downward and you see the whole valley and the quarry, which makes total sense that that's a a quarry. That is where we have the most epic scene in the movie where they fight using chainsaws. I just want to say, before the chainsaw fight, you get to see Mullet Guy, like, sensually polishing this car. Yeah. Then you hear a whoosh, and the big old battle axe in a shadow play silhouette just sticking out of his head as he just, like, stands shaking while blood spews everywhere. It's the perfect kind of dipshit thing to be doing, is just like, uh, this is all this guy cares about being a part of this cult and doing fucked up things, and then he just washes his car lovingly. While listening to like mariachi music, but yeah, his death is quick. Who's the guy he? F- who's the guy he fights with the chainsaw again? Because it's Swan is already dead, right? We should probably actually describe Swan's death because I feel like the intimacy of that specific death I feel is kind of important to uh, to Red. Basically, Swan is one hundred percent unrepentant. He's hilarious pathetically like, you're hurting me you're hurting me and then he's just like she burns and just saying all kinds of fucked up sh- shit about mandy to him she, she burned brightly mandy don't you think still better to burn out than fake It's, it's really a kill that he savors and he sticks the sharpened end of the battle axe all the way down his throat. Basically just savoring that guy's death because he sucked so much and he was such a sycophant to Jeremiah. And I think intimacy is a great way of putting it. Now, some of these kills were just like necessary for survival or these guys. Put yeah, down. like but- like Squishy Demon, just he, he just snapped its neck. They're like the rabid dogs he's putting down. Swan is relatively normal by comparison and chose to do this. And so he's just like, fuck you. It's going to be great to have you not on this earth. And I think intimacy is a perfect way of describing it. Anyway, who who wants to describe the chainsaw fight? (laughs) I I would like to describe this and Reese can uh, back me up once a little bit if I forget anything. He fucking sees, like, the last guy, like, the dark-haired guy with the greasy hair. He's walking up to him slowly. He's doesn't not paying attention. He's, like, doing some bullshit with wood. He sees a fucking chainsaw on the ground, and you just, like, see the gears turning in Red's head. Because he's a lumberjack, so... He's just, like, he picks it up and just starts slowly walking towards the last guy, trying to get the damn thing started. He's like, vroom! Room and it's not starting and then the greasy haired guy notices him and pulls out from behind a log an even longer fucking chainsaw it's very phallic it's incredibly <laughs> phallic it's like it, it, it is it is like four times as long it's insane <laughs> yeah and it's just like it is like 100% like this scene's like oh that's not a knife this is a knife it rules and you just see the look on Red's face. He's like, uh, uh-oh. As he's like slightly panicking and trying to get the chainsaw to work. 
the dipshit gets his long chainsaw started first try, and Rez is like, okay, all right, this isn't funny anymore, let's get the chainsaw to start. Yeah, exactly. It's an erectile dysfunction joke, in it's, my It's 100% <laughs> like really phallic for some reason. I think a lot of the themes in this movie revolve around masculinity, and like, this guy, you know, as big of a dipshit as he is, is kind of the most like, for lack of a better term, the most alpha male outside of what Jeremiah thinks he is. Yeah. Like he's, you know, and he, he can wheel. He's, he's pretty good in a fight and isn't like one of those fucked up bikers. He's kind of like the most normal human male analog as brutish and awful as he is. So it's this interesting comparison. Um, I don't know if I could read this much into it, but to me, I take it as red is somebody who's very outside of society and is kind of an outcast. Um, and I think this it might be him kind of coming and facing that as, you know, one of the last <laughs> vestiges of his humanity melts away um, as he's doing this, because now he's half demon biker. Uh, he multiclassed. Uh, <laughs> but the method of execution in for this fight, however, was Oof. comical. Yeah. It was comical in, in its absurdity. Uh-huh. He basically falls onto the super long chainsaw and it just like blood goes everywhere. And it's just like such an extended making fucked up noises and shaking death. All of his insides spray out in front of him. It's interesting how violent they choose to show like various deaths. And I think it is connected to like... You know, uh, for lack of a better term, toxic masculinity. He falls on his own dick. I would definitely say if it is connected to toxic masculinity, it wouldn't be intentional. However, I wouldn't, given the like the themes of uh, of sort of uh, toxic culture that he pushed forth, I would not put it past Panos to have at least some sort of insight into it. For sure. Well, I think, too, it's just like part of it is that, and I think part of it, too, he's just kind of rocking and rolling with what he thinks are like the images that will emotionally resonate. And so maybe it's unintentional, but I still think it, it fits very well. I think it's funny. He fell on his own peepee, his own metal peepee. <laughs> There's a lot of metal phalluses in this movie. I just realized, you know, I, I can't help feeling that. Well, that I, too, took some energy from the burning. Well, that would be nice for you, wouldn't it? But really, you didn't. It was meant for me and me alone. I was enriched by the horse slaughter, not you. Yes, of course, Jeremiah. Not to worry, though. By my ascension... You two shall rise. Oh, I, I just want to say that the executing of the greasy hair man is what leads us to the visual treat of the church. And he enters into it and he's just like looks at the altar and they're like religious text. And he just like reads it for a second with just like an amazing level of disgust. Like, what the, what the fuck are you idiots doing here? Anyways, <laughs> then he pulls out the pulpit. <laughs> The church is just sort of a front, and it leads down into this, like, almost like a bunker, but completely sparse. There's nothing in it. I really don't know how to describe it other than, like, like a dungeon. Sister Marlene, the last yeah. one left alive, has her own little, like, hidey hole in the corner with, like a, like, a kind of lava lamp thing and a single, like, bench, and she sleeps on the floor. And it's clear that it's just like, oh, he just treats all of these cultists like complete shit. And she's, like, at the top of the food chain. How much worse must the rest of them live? Yeah, and their interaction is also one of the more uh, painful. It's short, but wow, is it a... It is hard to watch. It really is. It's basically how Jeremiah told her she was, like, really amazing to fuck. And, like, yeah. how much she's put put into that. And you're just like, this killer, man. This is fucked up. Jeremiah's ass. I'm the most sensual lover has ever experienced. Because of my sensitivity and my empathy, I can anticipate my lover's every move. And meet them like 
he does. Yeah. But yeah. Off screen. She basically like begs for her life and trying to like bargain with him. And uh yeah, he cuts off her head and throws it at Jeremiah, which is just like and he freaks the fuck out. What I love about it is that he freaks the fuck out, but not because this cultist of his is dead. He just thinks the head is gross. It's like he kicks the head back at him. Like there's no <laughs> reference for the head. Jeremiah is sitting in this otherworldly cavern where this red pulsating light bathes him. And he is in his tidy whities basically just humping the wall. He's new age dancing. He's like cavorting about in like spiritual bliss. He's communing with the God or whatever thing that he's like worshiping. Yeah, and this is where we get the uh, thesis of his uh, religion and perspective. Well, we got it earlier with, with Mandy where he's like, he spoke to me and he said, it's all yours, Jeremiah. It's all yours. It's all for you. Which is just like the most narcissistic, like self-serving religious cult possible it's it, it's his thesis in the sense of like it's the thesis of who he is less than like what he believes because it's he he gets like so pathetic he's like what do you want i'll suck your dick <laughs> <laughs> i'll suck your fucking dick <laughs> and then after that he's like i don't kneel before anybody you kneel before me he does like a straight uh, up golem turn where he just mm-hmm. goes from Schmeagle to Gollum in, in like a couple seconds where he's just like, no, no, I don't kneel to anyone. Like right after weeping and sobbing. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Oh, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me what to do. 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 Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Well, I mean, you just see, like, it's it's his response mechanism for any time he feels weak, he goes to this, ah, but the demon uh, bitch willow told me that everything <laughs> was mine, so I'm just going to believe in that. And, you know, when he was looking in the mirror and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? You see that, too, yeah. where it's like he... It, After he got his dick laughed at earlier in the movie, he goes, goes to the mirror and he's like, he just stares into it and just repeats, what do I do? over and over and over again he just really conveys how pathetic and desperate he is and then he like he composes himself and then you just see like the the influence his the influence of like what this bullshit he believes over himself uh it's just like and i can't remember what he says but it's something like uh never doubt yourself or something like that what if the secret went horribly wrong (laughs) (laughs) that's a good way to describe it honestly that's his cult you can't harm me man i mean look at what he provides it's all mine you're just me Without a soul, without a brain, without anything, animal, you, you, you have no spirit everlasting, no, no radiant light. I possess elucidations you will never know. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. You unholy abomination. You aren't even worth my spit. It's all that hate in your heart. That's the blame. Follow 
everywhere, man. Follows you everywhere. I can still help you. It's not just your life I can save. No, it's your goddamn soul. No, 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 please, please, please don't hurt me. Can't you see this was all part of your journey? The journey that led you to me. Your salvation, your cleansing, by my hand. Oh, I'll blow you, man. I'll suck your fucking dick. That's the commentary is that like a lot of powerful narcissistic dipshits go in this direction of every time they are shown to be weak in any way, shape, or form have their fucked up fiction. They're just like, oh, Hillary Clinton has told me I'm perfect and I will never <laughs> not perfect. So I'm going to go out on Twitter and... <laughs> oh my fucking God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mother told me it's all for me. <laughs> and, and if then... Mother, if Mother were elected, I'd be having brunch. Oh my God. Children of the new brunch. <laughs> oh my god, we might have a title. Wave. Uh, but uh, Nicholas Cage says to him, um, and I think he, I think he bellows something at the bikers. But basically, the first time he's spoken in like forty minutes, I am your god now. Oh, it's and so then fucking crushes good. his fucking head, like just with his two bare hands, just crushes it. As far as head crushings go, like, it takes a while. Like, you see everything, like, crack, and you see the, the prosthetic of the uh, practical effect give in. <laughs> Some eyeball bulge technology going on. It was such a beautifully done scene. And he has, like, that low, demonic, post-processed voice that the bikers had. And so, like, he hasn't spoken since that time. Uh, I don't think he said anything after he, like, took the LSD, basically. I, I, my theory is that it's basically transported him to their world, uh, metaphorically speaking, where he's now just, like, fully drugged out and, like, he's seeing all the mystical elements as, like, real. I think he's kind of transformed all those that stuff into the stuff through Mandy's eyes. I think, you know, it's still very much a part of them. He's got their blood on him. He's, you know, definitely fucked up on LSD, uh, the dark LSD. Uh, but I think that, I, I don't know exactly LSD, what it's meant to me. LSD. <laughs> nice. It, it's about the mystical power he draws from Mandy being just infinitely more powerful than his narcissistic mystical power that he's ginned up. Is how I read it. If I want to get metacommentative about it, it's sort of a refutation of the, I guess, hyper-individualism that we see so much, that, that's that been happening so much since, like, the age of the internet began. The idea that there is nothing outside of the self or ego pitfalls that, that, that sort of rise up. Because, like, this is the result. And specifically the American self, I would say, you know, I think this is, to me, it's it's very much rooted in his, his hatred of kind of like hit, Reagan. the hippy-dippy New Age shit and Reagan Christianity rise up and how people just use that as a system of social control. The last scene in the movie, he's driving in this car that he took from the, the mullet man, and it like, he's, it's, the car's empty. He looks over to the passenger seat, and Mandy is there. Before, before yeah. that moment, there is a scene where I think it's supposed to be the first time he meets Mandy, and they're in a bar. And well, was at a both, concert. Oh, at a concert. And they're both wearing the shirt he says is his favorite shirt. And Nicolas Cage's face is in total <laughs> shadow. Until he sees uh, Mandy, and then there's this like hallucinogenic bloom of light, just completely encompasses him. And then there's that car scene where Nicolas Cage is dressed up in his metal getup, and Mandy is wearing the uh, the band shirt from earlier in the film. 
And then it cuts back to him, and he's grinning like a lunatic. Just Nicolas Cage going full, like, Nicolas Cage smile and wide eyes and just covered in blood and his his blood-soaked biker gear. Well, I think it's important (laughs) to point out that it's definitely very intentionally shot this way, that Mandy is not in the car. The shot of Mandy is her face at the scene where she found, where he found her imposed outside of the car window. Right. Well, like it cuts to the outside of the car, like the front of the car and you see into the car and you just see him. You don't see Mandy. So it's like, he's hallucinating that she's there. Well, it, it, I think there too, it's, 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 I would even say it's like, at this point it's beyond hallucination. It's just like that kind of dreamlike, uh, experience that comes with hallucinations is just like permanently imprinted on his brain in a way. Right. Because the, the, the last scene is you pan up and it's that alien sky with, it seems like, you know, planets yeah. in the background and these fucked up mountains. It looks like they're on fucking Mars. Like it, it goes back. It goes back to like the beginning of the movie where they're talking about like their favorite planets. Every scene Every single scene in this movie is like painstakingly crafted to basically be like the cover of a heavy metal album. They like <laughs> that is a very specific aesthetic that Panos was going for with this movie, and that he also went for in the pre like and beyond the Black Rainbow. In this movie, however, he sort of uh, goes full tilt into it because the like the choice of music in this movie. <laughs> So the soundtrack was done by uh, Johan Johansson. I believe it was the last soundtrack he did before he mm-hmm. died. But as well as Johan Johansson, they had help on the soundtrack from one Stephen O'Malley. Does that name ring a bell to any of you? Nope. No. Stephen O'Malley is the is the guitarist, uh, one of the geniuses behind the sort of apocalyptic druid drone band, uh, Sun. You, do you know Sun? I know that you're a metal knower, so I I definitely wanted this insight because I am vastly not knowledgeable in this place. Okay, this guy, uh, the trailer music, that driving, like, reverbed guitar looped through the fuzz box, that is Stephen O'Malley contributing to this. When the Horn of Abraxas is presented, that's Stephen O'Malley because his touches on the soundtrack are brought forth. It's that alien moment. The horn of Abraxas when he's driving through the tunnel in the quarry on the mm-hmm. on the four by four, and the soundtrack was also produced by the man who's basically produced all the uh, Wolves in the Throne Room albums. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they are a the formative figure in American style black metal. There's a lot of like very subtle production chops and cues taken from a very foundational part of the American metal, uh, well, specifically American extreme metal scene. Uh, you remember how the logo for Mandy turned into... Yeah, no, the, the logo for Mandy, I don't know uh, that much, but that is the archetypical uh, that's, the, that's basically a black metal. That's basically a black metal band logo. But the like sonic design in this in in this movie, it's very tilted for stress and release, which mm-hmm. uh, the release is also very stressful. <laughs>
Cheddar Goblin. Very important feature of a lot <laughs> of a lot of the metal that was being sort of uh, represented here, like black metal, drone metal, in that there's no release, there's only escalation, and then nothing. Mm. Seems like a lot of effort was put into kind of making that kind of like authentic connection well. Not like he just found a couple metal bands. He's like really dug deep for like people who really kind of know how to not just know how to foundation. Yeah. Fundamentally shaped the American metal scene. It's really cool. And it's done in it's done in a way that's conducive to what he's trying to do and not shoehorned in. There was the article that came out recently that they did scans or whatever on people listening to metal music and they found it was actually something that brought people a lot of joy and peace Mm -hmm. uh, stereotypically and that kind of matches with a lot of things that Panos talked about with Mandy where he said he wanted it to, to be a comforting film despite all of the imagery and despite all of the the stress and the building and the escalation he he wanted that that presence to be something that in the end, despite what you just went through, you're in a in a more peaceful, comfortable place or in a weird way. Well, it's catharsis. It's a movie that uh, that is fundamentally cathartic. At least for me, it was because the slow burn of the early moments leading up to basically a I, like a orgy or- of violence. Not an orgy, like 30 minutes of like of adrenaline and escalation and then dipping back down into the lulling and uh, slow burn. It's a very, very good movie. I would suggest everybody watch it. Well, there's just the one thing I wanted to say um, before we uh, finally sign off and end Alton's torture. <laughs> as much as it is about all these other things, it's also about Panos Cosmatos' relationship with his parents who passed away before this movie and were both artists. Uh, his dad was the guy who directed Rambo 2. And Tombstone. And, he set, and Tombstone. I always forget that. I haven't seen Tombstone in a long time. And I think it's also interesting viewing it from that end, is that like uh, so much of that stuff where you're like, what does it mean? It's just like maybe he's just referencing his father. And as much as it's supposed to be this catharsis for us, it's also catharsis of the artist. And that's part of why I think it's so effective and why I like it so much. I don't want to go to the whole anti-Hollywood spiel, um, but, you know, so many movies, like, have, like, a very basic kind of three-act structure and, you know, they overcome in the end, and that's, you're supposed to make you feel good. But, like, no recent big blockbuster has made me feel, like, a quarter of go- as good as Mandy, personally. A part is just because it's so original and so fresh, and partially, too, is just because in going to these kind of places, you know, it faces something that's a lot more real, and that's kind of why it's interesting, and that's why I wanted to talk about it for so long. And uh, it's fucking criminal that Mandy was disqualified for an Oscar. Oh, really? Yeah. That sucks because it was like a limited theatrical, like a very limited theatrical run and then released a video on demand, which is apparently like a very specific rule that you can't violate for some reason. My take on that is that Mandy is a thousand percent too good for the author. Yeah. They, (laughs) They gave awards to a movie by a pedophile, bad movie by a pedophile. And what movie was that? Uh, the Queen movie. I forget somebody to love. I forget what the title was. Oh my god! They that guy was a pedophile. Brian Singer has a long history. Oh my god! Yeah, Epstein tier. Epstein tier. (laughs) Jesus Christ! Maybe not Epstein tier, but real bad. As if it wasn't bad enough that they like completely discounted anything about like uh, his sexuality in that movie, like the fact that he died of AIDS. Just sort of like, oh, you died. I've not watched that movie, mostly because I heard it was bad. It's not good, but uh, Mandy is good. Yes. Yes. Mandy is very good, and you should watch it. And also, I'd like to say, this might be my own bias as speaking, but I think Mandy, uh, like, Mandy is a movie that I think can be watched pretty, I don't know, at... Like, as a pretty good companion 
too sorry to bother you. <laughs> and I would like to add, this might just be my own biases talking, but I think that you could watch this pairs extremely well with the Garfield movie. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> A Tale of Two Kitties? Um, let's. What's the original one? He's like going out on the town. It's like he's a cool cat, a fat cat, Mr. Number One Cat. Look out, cause here comes Garfield. It's look out, here comes Garfield. He, this, right, that's, and that's a good movie to pair with this. And and that's gonna be the next two-hour movie podcast that we do. Is <laughs> about the Garfield movie, Not the Carson. TV right, special I- of the same name. All right, uh, I've I've said all I have to say about Mandy. Closing thoughts from uh, from you two. I'm it gonna could. take LSD and become a hell biker. Do it. Uh, it. it <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna replace my dick with a metal sword. Uh, it good. Just yeah. Good. Just gonna re- repeat that. Uh, it good. Watch watch movie. Gonna take, take LSD, LSD and, and become a hellbiker. And shit in Alton's <laughs> generator at work. <laughs> no one's gonna get that reference, man. <laughs> I don't care. I think it's just two hours. I think it's funny. <laughs> no. <yeah. laughs> if you make it this far, you get to the secret in The jokes. reference is, is that I constantly say shit in places at Alton's work. That's the whole joke. <laughs> May, uh, make, uh, uh, Replace every can of spam on Hawaii with Hell SD. Hell SD, hell yeah. <laughs> Spread that talking. gray goop shit on my toast like butter. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Here are the list of our patrons for this month. Thank you so much for supporting us. We use your money to buy video games, I'm sorry to say. Uh, Fucking gamers. <laughs> I know, right? Resident Disgusting. Evil, Resident Evil 2 is dope. Yeah. The 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 pod has paid for Resident Evil 2 for Reese. Uh, and it bought Earth Defense Force for some of our friends so that we could play that together. Uh, and without further ado, here is the list of the, the powerful poster tier. Goat Napper, thank you very much. I wish you luck in kidnapping goats, I guess. Robert Miles, thank you. Oh, fuck me. Um, Dear Vigoatoato, well, I never thought it would happen to me, Ellipses, which otherwise known as Conky. What's up, Conky? Hey, Conky. Nate M., thank you very much. Higgins the Seagull, thank you, Higgins. Big ups to Higgins. Big up to Higgins. Nathan Melby. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Robert M. Fenner, we appreciate your contribution to our cult. Definitely, I mean, definitely not a cult. Uh, video games are the worst thing on earth. It supports independent thought as long as you agree with us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kyle Reederman. Uh, did I say Robert Fenner? I think I did. I think you did. Tom Devan, the video game man. Thank you. Dissonant Thank you, Dragon. And um, uh, Jordan Peterson. Jordan, you've supported us from day one. You made the Mandy yeah. episode happen. We love you. Daddy. We do. Oh, okay. I'm glad that that's coming at the end of two hours, so no one's going to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. We will see you thank on you the so next much. regular episode. Uh, Missandry, thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks for inviting uh, me. Uh, is there any place on the internet where people can find you and content with Sandra? Uh, uh, I just talk, I just mostly complain about metal on my uh, on my Twitter, uh, which is uh, at Missandry Cannon. Uh, Cannon, is as it? in the artillery, not the uh, uh, not the fanfic stuff. Right? Is, is it is it a cannon because you just like artillery, or is it? It's it's a canon because why not? Fair enough. All right, thank you so much for uh, enduring this with me, Alton and Missandry. I really appreciate it, um, and thank you to the listener. 
Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Shadow Goblin.